you this morning is simply under the influence. Under the influence. Let me begin by saying this. When the Bible speaks to God's people, while it might not use the same verbiage that we use in our vernacular, it is adamant that the people of God do not place themselves under the influence of anything or anyone except the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. The Bible tells the people of God that they are not to place themselves under the influence of anything or anyone but the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit-given influence that is given to us by virtue of the presence of God the Holy Spirit can be seen in a variety of ways. For example, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 5, Solomon says that we are to pursue wisdom above all things. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul says that we are to be filled, a word that really could be better translated driven, by God the Holy Spirit and not intoxicated with alcohol. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says that we are to be sober-minded, a word that is sometimes translated clear-headed or self-controlled. In 3 John, verse 11, John says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Now you see, church, sometimes we spiritualize things like be filled with the Holy Spirit, but the reality of the matter is, is if we are filled with the Holy Spirit, driven by the Holy Spirit, if we are in fact under the influence of God the Holy Spirit instead of anything or anyone, it will look like something. We will be able to determine this fact by the characteristics that our life exemplifies. It may show itself in a variety of ways, some of which I've already mentioned to you, but the truth of the matter is, is the Bible expects God's people to live under the influence, but of nothing and no one except God the Holy Spirit. But oh, if only it were that easy. <laughs> Amen? Church, we're living under the influence of something or someone, each and every one of us, and sometimes we are not immune to the effects. There are a variety of things that are vying for our attention, our affection, our thought, our dedication. And therefore, this morning, we're looking and learning from Deuteronomy chapter 13, a chapter that is warning us against the things that draw our attention and affection, particularly away from God. Two weeks ago, we talked about false prophets, prophets that may be able to, even through the power of Satan, perform signs that come to pass. But if after the sign comes to pass, they say, do you believe me? To which the people say, well, yes, you had a sign that came to pass. If they should say, now let us go follow other gods, even though there is a sign that has come to pass, they are a false prophet. Now we're looking at the second and third points of this 13th chapter. And these two points are under the influence of family and under the influence of the world. 
These two points this morning are going to challenge us perhaps more than the previous point because sometimes we can identify false prophets from a distance, but it's difficult to deal with family, isn't it? Sometimes we can identify false prophets from a distance, but it's difficult to deal with the world in which we live. So today I hope to encourage you as well as convict you. If you'll pay attention now to the 13th chapter and the 6th verse of Deuteronomy, we're going to look at our first point, under the influence of family. Let's discuss this point, beginning in verse 6. It says, if your brother, the son of your mother, and this is not some sort of general brother, if your family is anything like mine, I've got 286 cousins. They're not really cousins, but they're your cousins, you know, and you have an aunt. You know, I have an, I have an Aunt Jill, and, and she's not really my aunt, but she's my aunt. You know what I mean? Sometimes this happens. Sometimes you have family. But this is talking about biological family. Okay, so don't get it confused. The point of the text is this. This is somebody you've grown up with. This is somebody you call family. Or your son. Or your daughter. Listen to this. Or the wife you embrace. Or the husband you embrace. Or your friend who is as your own soul. Your best friend. Your closest friend. If any of these people entices you secretly saying, let's go serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near or far, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to them. There's a couple of things that I want you to note at the outset that are suggested or we can infer from this text. And the first one I know you know, but I'm going to tell you anyway so that you know that I know that you know. You ready? We aren't given the choice of our biological family. Now, some of you say, thank God for my biological family, and some of you might be saying, I wish I were given the choice of my biological family. The truth of the matter is, is philosophically, we like to run around talking about all the choices that we have, and the reality of the matter is, is we fail to see how many issues in our life dispose us toward a typical end? And we believe in God's providence in all things from eternity past to eternity future, or do we? Because we grow up with a sort of egotistical and conceited idea of our ability and our freedom, when in reality those things are very minute. You didn't pick the family that you were born into. You didn't pick the color of your skin, your socioeconomic standing. You didn't pick the hospital or the city you were born in. You didn't pick the country that you were born in, but you're here, aren't you? In God's providence, the family that he has placed us in plays an important role in our development and our destiny. Let me say that again. In God's providence, the family that he has placed us in plays an important role in our development and our destiny. The reason I say this to you and the reason I want you to receive it, can you receive it? Is because though your family may play an important role in your development and your destiny, 
you must believe. Whatever direction your family might be taking you in, in spite of the important role that they might play in your development and destiny, you must believe for yourself. Your grandmother's salvation cannot be passed down to you. Your dad's knowledge of the Bible cannot be passed down to you if you're unwilling to receive it, if you will not submit to the authority of faith before all things. What happens when our family isn't what God intended it to be? What happens when our family isn't what God intended it to be biblically? What happens when the very mechanism that God has designed to bring us closer to him, to love him, to serve him, in fact, has the opposite effect on us? What happens when members of our, of our family, instead of bringing us closer to God, actually pull us farther away? When we read our Bible, they discourage us from reading the Bible. When we say we're going to church, they say, again? When we go to worship the Lord through studying on a Wednesday night, they go, you study the Bible so much, are you going to become a nun? The reality of the matter is we have in our biological circles challenges to our faith that if we were to give it a moment's consideration are serious. And the scripture here warns us not to submit to these challenges against our faith, regardless of whether or not it comes from our grandparents, our parents, our siblings, even our spouse. I love this phrase, the woman you embrace. You might have the greatest love life, but if the woman you're making love to is dragging you away from God, you're in a difficult situation. If the man who makes you feel so special as a woman is not a man who will go arm in arm with you to the cross, you're in a dangerous situation. The Lord is warning us, not just anybody, his people, that to live under the influence of anything or anyone except the Holy Spirit is wrong. Second, I want you to note, by way of application, that while we cannot choose our biological family, our first family, we can choose our next family. In other words, as we grow older and we choose our friends and we choose the people with whom we will spend our lives, we are making choices not of an extension of our family, but of our family. Let me say this again. When we grow older and we make the choice of those people who will constitute our family, we're not adding them to the family that already exists. We are adding them to the family that will be. Let me explain myself. When two people get married... Sometimes the families say, I'm so glad that our family is getting bigger. No. Some of you in-laws need to hear this. 
Your family's not getting bigger. A new family is starting. When your daughter marries a boy, that boy is not your son. And when your son marries a girl, that girl is not your daughter. Your son has started a family. Your daughter has started a family. And some of you in-laws need to back out and back up and let your son and daughter start their family. If you didn't cut the cord before, cut it now. When a new family begins, we do nothing but inhibit its growth if we aren't helping their independence. That's why you're an in-law. You're not family, you're in-law. Listen, there's nothing wrong with families growing. There's nothing wrong with people coming into family. We've had people come into our family, and we have had people go into other families, as you have. And, of course, you love these people. You welcome them as if they are your own blood. And, of course, we would do that. But the choices you make about the people who are not your biological family but will be the family that you make well, that's an entirely different choice. And the choices we make, we must live with. Amen? Amen? The reality of the matter, family, is this. The choices you make about the people you will spend your life with, whether it is your spouse, a best friend, perhaps someone you go into business with, these are people who have influence in your life, and you have to check yourself to evaluate yourself, test yourself to see whether or not this is someone who is permitted by God to have influence in your life. If they pull you away from God, the answer is emphatically what? No! No! And if you find yourself three years into Christianity, five years into Christianity, ten years into Christianity, and you can't grow, you need to survey your landscape because I guarantee you there are people pulling you away from Christ or at least anchoring you in one place. What would your life be like if that person who has such a great influence in your life was replaced by someone who has a heart for Jesus? Just think for a moment. What would your marriage be like? What would your family dynamic be like? What would your friendship circle be like if every solution wasn't reached around alcohol, but around biblical verses? The reality of the matter is, guys, we are born into a certain family, and we have no choice over these matters. But we do have a choice about our next family, but we don't always decide like we really do. We must make decisions about the people who will live in our lives as if this text matters. 
And this text is telling us that the most important influence in our lives as God's people must be God the Holy Spirit. And if we allow anyone in our life to have influence in our life that doesn't agree with that, we have a problem. There are obvious issues that we should avoid. For example, a Christian shouldn't settle with anyone who isn't a Christian. I know this sounds elementary, and maybe you're tired of hearing it, but there's nothing wrong with reviewing the elementary principles of our faith. A Christian is better off single than married to a non-Christian. But in addition to that, when two people decide to come together and make a family, not extend their family, but make their own family, they have to have a similar work ethic. I mean, if one partner is lazy and the other partner is very indigenous, that's going to be problematic. Industrious, indigenous. What is it? That's local. Of course they're local. They live together. Industrious. If someone is very industrious and the other one's super lazy, never likes to make the bed and the house is always a mess and they call in sick two days a week, uh, it's going to be a problem. We are commanded to do with our strength and knowledge what God has called us to do. We can't shirk responsibility in this matter. We can't expect someone else to do for us what God has called us to do for ourselves. Look at what chapter 13, verse 9 says. You shall kill him. Get this. Your hand shall be what? Your, shirt, your hand shall be what? Oh, you don't shirk responsibility. If someone comes to you and your solution is not to deal with the issue, but to get two or three other people in the hallway by the water fountain to talk about it, you're sinning. Gossip is in a list of sins in the New Testament. You don't gossip about problems. You go to the issue of the problem and you deal with it. You do it. I do it. We don't pass down responsibility to anyone else. We handle things ourselves. As Deuteronomy 13, 9 says, your brother comes to you and leads you to another God. Yeah, don't call the police. You do it first. Don't call the elders of the town. You do it first. Church, there's a pointed statement here. Your hand shall be first against him. Do not leave off to someone else what is in your power to do. That applies to a lot of different areas of your life. Whether you're a husband, a wife, a son, a daughter. There are a lot of things that is in your power to do, and it is not an option given to you by God to leave off to someone else. But I wonder how many of us are facing the reality of unregenerate family members leading us and arguing us away from our God and toward another God. 
I'm not sure how many people that would qualify. I, I think probably the more common issue that we deal with, and you can agree with me or disagree with me, let me know by saying amen, but, but here's what I'm wondering. I, I'm wondering if we have more people who are agnostic or atheistic leading us away from God than we do someone going, let's go, let's go after this other cult. That, that's probably the case more often than not. Amen? Where we go, I don't know why you believe that. There's no God. That's probably more common than somebody going, you should become a Mormon. Am I right? I don't know why you believe what you believe. Why do you go to church so much? There's no God. Jesus raised from the dead. This is nonsensical. This is craziness. The reality of the matter is there are some things that even if they were explained, an atheist would argue with, not because the points don't have evidence, but because they refuse to submit to God. And those people you just got to let go of. Those family members you just got to go, if you're ever ready to talk, I'll be ready to talk. And you got to stop there. Which makes it all the more significant when it comes to choosing the people you spend your life with. Church is spirit-baptized, Bible-believing, God-fearing Christians. We must stand firmly on the rock of Christ and unapologetically hold to what he said in John 14, 6. I am the way... I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a principle that we refuse to negotiate on in our faith. And anyone who would lead us away from that belief has to be dealt with. Now, I understand that the capital punishment aspect of Deuteronomy 13 is probably a little more intense than you expected. I mean, if I get a phone call from Christina and she goes, I stoned my, my mother in the backyard yesterday and I just wanted to call and say, praise God. My next phone call will be to 911. We are in a democratic republic. We're, we're, we're not in a theocracy like Israel. God gave the law, and the law was not for the world. The law was just for Israel. That's it. It were a covenant people, and it was specifically contained to them. If anyone wanted to become a person of faith, they, lay, they lived under the covenant, the same covenant. They were not allowed to live with the Israelites and not live by the covenant. The covenant was the covenant with God, and that was that. But we're not under a theocracy. We live under the Constitution of the United States of America. And it would be wrong for us to say, if you find anybody while you're out there, carry a box of rocks with you, and uh, you be ready. You practice every day throwing rocks. You make sure you catch them right here on the temple. No, that would be crazy. That would be madness, right? We'd be on the cover of Miami Herald. Pastor says, stone everybody. That, that, that would be wrong. What I want you to understand is we, there's a bridge of hermeneutics, and we must understand what Moses is saying in his history, in his context, to his audience. But we can cross the bridge and make an application. And what I would like to apply under this first point, living under the influence of our family, is this. 
Be careful who you choose to be your family. We might not pick up rocks and throw them at anybody today, but we still have to draw lines. Amen? We still have to protect our own souls, our own minds, from those people who would do us harm if we let them in past this or that boundary. Pray about that. Think about that. Some of you may have some deciding to do this week. Now, if you're married to someone who isn't a believer, the Scripture does not say, go file today. The Scripture says, work on them, love them, love them well, serve them. In fact, Paul says, if you have a good marriage to someone who isn't a believer, why would you divorce? Work on their salvation. Love them and love them well. Serve them and serve them well. So don't walk away from here going, if I would have heard this message 10 years ago, my life would be in a different situation. Maybe. But that doesn't mean that God can't start working in your life and family today moving forward. Amen? Amen. There is always hope with our Lord. Always hope. Don't leave here discouraged, but leave here with a principled conviction that you're going to do it God's way moving forward. Let me talk to you about the second point this morning. Let me talk to you about being under the influence of the world. Under the influence of the world. Let's look at the text. This is our second and final point. Beginning in verse 12, God's word says, If you hear in one of your cities, which the Lord your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let's go after other gods. Let's serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire... It's a little, little journalistic investigation here. Uh, I heard that you were leading somebody. Is this true? Is this, is this true? You're, you're not just assuming that what you heard, second or third person, is accurate. You're verifying. Okay, you're verifying that this is the case. You shall inquire and make search and ask diligently. And behold, if it be true and certain, that's such an abomination... That's the word in the Old Testament for idolatry, abomination. That such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. There's a couple things here to note. First, we're not talking about family anymore. We're talking about public influence. We're not talking about family anymore. We're talking about public influence. Influence. This isn't family. This is happening in society. Apparently, as verses 12 and following suggest, this is happening in a city. There's a certain person or a certain group of persons who are leading this charge. Verse 13 calls them, if you look at the text, certain worthless fellows. And I don't know why when I say that, it sounds British to me, but the NIV says troublemakers. The New Living Translation says some scoundrels among you. That sounds a little British too. But if you're using the King James Version... 
Okay. If you're using the King James Version, then you'll see it says, the children of Belial. This is, this is a literal translation. The children of Belial. Now, we don't, we don't really use this language, albeit in 2023, but I want to give you the gist. Belial is the word that eventually became synonymous with Satan in the New Testament. So the Apostle Paul asks this rhetorical question in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 5. What does Christ have in common with Belial? So what I want to say from then till now with the development linguistically and historically and contextually is this. These guys are anti-God. These worthless fellows are anti-Bible. They're anti-covenant. In other words, church, to move the people of God and a godly society away from godliness and away from godly principles is not only an alternative to the covenant. It is evil. It is wrong. It is anti-God. It's not a, well, you got that option, but, but I, I, let me suggest to you this other option. No, God says that's satanic. And while I don't throw the word satanic around casually, those of you who have been under my preaching for Years will know that I don't throw the word satanic on anything, but, but that's what the text is saying, that to go over towards something as opposed to closer to God is a satanic move. It's not an alternative move. It's a satanic move. Interestingly, one commentator named Peter Craigie calls the group of people being referred to here urban revolutionaries because he makes a reference to the city right if there's a group of people in a city that says let's go after it's kind of interesting because when I hear Craigie's comment and on this text and he refers to them as urban revolutionaries I immediately think of what's happening in our world how people are aiming to change the trajectory and direction of our world by way of influencing things in cities. You don't hear about this stuff happening in Utah, some little town in Arkansas. Where is it? It's in the cities. I like that phrase, urban revolutionaries. It suggests that the reason for their revolution is to change their urban environment. And by changing their urban environment, changing the demographic of what is to what they believe it should be. But if we took some time and looked at what has come of these urban environments after these urban revolutionaries have done their work. It's not idyllic. 
It's not beautiful. If we were to pause for a moment and reflect upon our modern urban dilemma, I wonder if we can see something similar happening today. I wonder if we can see people saying, come this way, you don't need God. I wonder if we can see people saying, come this way, there's more ways than one. That's right. I wonder if we can see people saying, come this way, if you don't, you're not tolerant tolerant of other people's ideals and other people's beliefs. I wonder if we can see people saying, come this way. If you don't, then you don't support other people's rights. I, don't, I wonder if we're saying, I don't know if we're seeing other people saying, come this way. And if you don't, then you fill in the blank. I don't wonder if this is the case. I know it is. I know we see this happening today, but my follow-up question is not whether or not it is happening today before our eyes and in our hearing, but whether or not we have the knowledge, conviction, and strength to say something or do something about it. This leads me to another note. I want you to note our responsibility. We talked about our responsibility previously under the first point, but I want you to note our responsibility here too because it's important, as I said, we must have the knowledge, conviction, and strength. Three things, knowledge, conviction, and strength. I'm gonna say this again. We must have the knowledge, conviction, and strength to do something, to say something. We're at the end of this chapter, and I want to address this capital punishment idea described. You shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him. You shall be first to put him to death. Obviously, this is outside our own responsibility and accountability. Again, we've already talked about the fact that we don't live in a theocracy or a monarchy. This is not what we're talking about. We have different roles and responsibilities today, but still we have a role and a responsibility. Amen? And I think what we need to realize is this. Without the knowledge, we can't have the convictions. Without the convictions, we can't have the strength. And if we don't have the strength, we aren't going to do anything. We need the knowledge, the conviction, and the strength to speak up against the things that are anti-God, the conviction to speak up against things that are anti-God, and the strength to do something about it. Consider Jesus, friends. Consider Jesus. Jesus did not stay home playing video games locked in his mother's house. He said... Well, if I just stay here, people will come, and eventually I'll tell somebody about the kingdom. No, that's not what he said. In Luke chapter 4, verses 43, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God because this is why I was sent. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God because this is why I was sent. The context is them saying, tone it down. And he says, no, I've got to go to other cities. I've got to preach the kingdom of God. Friends, these are the footsteps in which we ourselves must walk as disciples of Christ. We can't do this Amish bomb shelter form of Christianity where we close the doors up and shy away from electricity and wait for the storm to blow over. 
We've got to be in the world, but not of the world. We've got to take things that are neutral, like technology, and use it to glorify God. Our profession must be public. Let me say that again. Our profession must be public. And if we're going to be public about our profession, there's a couple of verses that I want to share with you from the book of Proverbs that I think will help us as we begin the steps along this journey. The first is Proverbs 4.23. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the issues of life or the springs of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance. That means check yourself. That means examine yourself. That means test yourself. That means observe your patterns of behavior. And after observing your patterns of behavior, ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Am I living a life that brings God glory and blesses those around me? Here's another one, Proverbs 4.26. Ponder the path of your feet, and then all your ways will be sure. Now, I know you know people as well as I do who are 10 years into sloppy living. They don't plan. They just step wherever they step. This is what Paul warned us about in Ephesians chapter 4 when he says, don't be carried away by every wind and wave of doctrine. We have to be founded. We have to be resolute. If we ponder the path of our feet, then our path will be sure. To close, let me say this. We are all living under the influence of something or someone. It's difficult not to live under the influence of our family, the people we've chosen. It's difficult not to live under the influence of the world that's around us. But most importantly, church, my question for you today is this. Are you living under the influence of God the Holy Spirit and the inspired Word of God? <laughs> 